Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll look this morning at verses 10 to 15. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 8. <coughs> I suspect you've all seen these little bathroom uh, books. We have one in our bathroom. It's called uh, Life's Little Instruction Book. It has such wonderful little pearls of wisdom as... Um, wear out, don't rust out. Or don't accept good enough as good enough. Or if you play games with children, let them win. You know, wonderful little pieces of wisdom. A whole book full of little tidbits that somebody collected from who knows where. You know, I suspect that for many people the Bible's kind of like that. It has verses, right? Maybe we memorize them quote them as pithy little bits of wisdom. But where do they come from and who wrote them? Who knows? God dropped them on the lawn, I guess. I don't know. But the truth is the Bible is not like my little life's instruction book. The Bible was written in specific historical situations by specific people guided for some specific purpose by the Holy Spirit. The truth is that the more we can know about who wrote it and when and for what purpose, the more we understand what God intends to say to us. It's not just little bits of wisdom. It's, it's, it's literature written in some time and place for some purpose. So I, I say all of that just to introduce that I want to tell you something about the background of our text today, for actually this is a text where we know quite a bit about the background of this text. In the middle of the first century, the, the Christians in and around Jerusalem began to have a lot of uh, trouble, really hard times. There was apparently a famine during the reign, that part of the, the world, during the reign of uh, the Emperor Claudius from about 41 to 54 AD. And at that same time, with all the trouble that the famine brought, persecution really began in earnest for Christians in, in and around Jerusalem. So when the apostle came and met with the leaders of the church uh, in, in Jerusalem, uh, Peter, uh, James, and John, and those guys, uh, one th and they recognized the legitimacy of his ministry out in the Roman Empire, one thing they asked of him was, but would you please remember the poor? Something that he was concerned to do. And in fact, we see Paul doing that. So not long after that, Paul is, or a few years later, Paul and Barnabas are up in Syria, north of Israel, in a town called uh, Antioch. And there they collect some money as a relief effort. And they, they go and they take it down to the leaders in the church of Jerusalem, say, we've gathered this up to help you out here. They're remembering the poor there in Jerusalem. But the truth is that as time passed, the situation in Jerusalem only got worse. And so Paul, seeing this need, began to uh, tell all the churches throughout the whole Roman Empire, everywhere he traveled, all of these Gentile churches, he began to tell them of this need and, and, and to plan to collect this huge big relief effort offering, which then could be taken to relieve the needs, to relieve the trouble of the church in Jerusalem. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, this was already beginning, and uh, the people were quick to respond, and they made plans to give. But now some time has passed, and he writes the second uh, letter 
to uh, the church at Corinth. And apparently, while other churches have given generously, the church at Corinth has kind of grown cold on this project. They made uh, great uh, plans and they made great commitments, but the truth is they kind of have lost interest. You know how that goes. Other things come along, your life goes on, and it just doesn't seem so important anymore, and they haven't really done anything about it. And so in our text, in fact, in chapters 8 and 9 here, this is what's going on in this whole text. The Apostle Paul writes again to the church in Corinth and encourages them to follow through with the commitments that they made, specifically these commitments for, uh, for uh, gathering money for relief, a relief effort for the Christians in Jerusalem who were in the thick of a terrible struggle. So that's the background. Let's listen to what the Apostle writes to this church. I want to begin with verse 9 that we talked about already last week, but it sets the context here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Last week we considered, or two weeks ago I guess, we considered verse 9. There we learn about how our giving is to flow from the fountainhead of God's grace extended to us in Jesus. You may remember the points there. We give because God gave to us, and we give like God gave his Son. Well, our text today, verses 10 to 15, continues to unpack that same kind of, uh, of thinking, that same principle. Paul does not now set aside the faith, set aside the gospel, and go into some fundraising mode. Instead, he unpacks how the principles of the faith, how our life in Christ applies to this very practical issue of giving, of uh, the use of our money and, and people's needs. So this morning I want to set before you three principles of the Christian life, which in this context become three principles of Christian giving. The first is this, that faith produces works. Faith produces works. The issue of the relationship between our faith And our works has always been a difficult thing for people to define. And people have gone in all sorts of crazy directions with that. But there is no question that there is a connection between our faith and our actions, our works. Jesus, in fact, warns against faith that springs up enthusiastically, like seed that's put planted in rocky ground and boom, it springs up, but it dies just as quickly because it has no root, never produces anything, never produces any fruit. In the same way, James in his writing warns that faith without works is dead. 
It's just dead. And the truth is, we've all seen examples of this, haven't we? People who were full of enthusiasm and emotion at the beginning, but in fact their faith never produced anything. You never saw any change in their life. And after a while it just all died out. And so, just like Jesus said, and just like we read in the scriptures, we probably have come to recognize too that true faith produces works. And if it doesn't, something's wrong. Well, that same principle applies to giving. What matters is not one's enthusiasm uh, when the need is made known, nor one's generous promises of what they plan to do in the heat of the moment. What matters is that those commitments lead to actions. And that's exactly what had not happened in the church at Corinth. Look again at the second part of verse 10 and verse 11. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. They had heard about the problems in Jerusalem, and their hearts had been moved, and they immediately contributed toward it. In fact, their commitment was so great, they said, we're going to do a lot more. We're going to have to gather up some money and save up. But in fact, they didn't do it. They didn't follow through. Though they had compassion, on, yes, they had eagerness, and yes, they were generous, but it didn't produce anything. And real faith perseveres until it produces actions. Folks, I fear that most of us have become acclimated to unfinished business in regard to our faith. Our hearts have been moved from time to time to greater devotion or to generous giving to something and we've made a start only to eventually kind of forget about it and get back to normal and it just goes away. But that's not how God wants us to work. Listen to what the Lord says in Deuteronomy 32. He says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. In other words, God says, you know, you do not have to commit, you do not have to promise, but once you say, I will do it, then you must do it. And that's true in regard to every area of our discipleship to Christ, including this matter of giving. Faith produces works. So how much do we have to do? Or in the case of giving, how much do I have to give? Well, you see, that's the wrong question. That leads us down a whole wrong path. So we need to hear the second truth that we find in this text, and that's this. God measures hearts, not works. God measures hearts, not works. The reasons Christians have often avoided this issue of faith-producing works is that a terrible distortion quickly develops. It goes something like this. So if my faith produces works, then you can look at the works and you can judge how much faith I have. In other words, what really matters is not what's in my heart at all. It just matters how much I work. And if I work enough, God's pleased. And if I don't, God's not pleased. End of discussion. And now it's all become a matter of works. But no, 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 that's not the gospel. That's not how it's supposed to be. God's salvation is pure grace extended to undeserving sinners. All the best works we could ever do will never merit one 
bit of God's favor. It's all grace. Indeed, behind the very best of our works, God can spot self-righteousness, and, and, and he hates it. At the same time, behind what sometimes appears to be pitifully meager attempts at obedience, God sees a heart that's faithfully clinging to him and trusting him. You see, God measures hearts, not works. That's true not only in our relationship with the Lord, it's true in our giving. Giving is not measured by dollar amounts, but by the obedience of our faith as it is lived out in our particular situation. That's what the Apostle Paul says here in verse 12. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, to pick up a phrase from the end of verse 11, faith is expressed according to our means. God measures my heart and how it lives out with the means he has given me, not just the amount of my works or the amount of the dollars. This is a point Jesus was making when he pointed to the, uh, held up the, the widow, the poor widow, as an example of giving in Mark chapter 12. There we read, Jesus sat down opposite to the place where the offerings were put in, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. And many rich people threw in large amounts. But then a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more in the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything that she had to live on. You see, the widow's faith produced significant works in the context of her means. Though to the outsider, it looked like nothing. But God measures hearts not dollars. Now folks, this is a two-edged sword. This matter of faith working according to our means. On the one hand, it means that our requirement to give, to complete the task, to fulfill what we desire to do, fulfill what we committed ourselves to do, is always tempered by our ability to do that. There are times when we may have the best of desires and the most noble of intentions, but we cannot do what we plan to do. We are providentially hindered from it. And in those times, we take great comfort in this, that God knows my heart. And he's looking at the heart, not just the external work. But on the other hand, this principle means that all our talk about our desire to give and all of the impressive gifts we might give, and all of the attention we might receive for our wonderful leadership in the support of some cause, all of this may mean nothing. Because God knows 
our real means, and God knows our real intentions, and God knows what he has enabled us to do and what we've actually done. And he measures how our heart responded to the means he provided us, not just what everybody thought they saw. I read a conversation uh, of a conversation years ago in a little mission chapel in Cuba between a wise man of God named Teofilo and a young new believer named uh, Christabel. The conversation went like this. Christabel, if you had a hundred sheep, would you give 50 of them to the Lord's work? Oh, yes, I would, the young Christabel responded. This is Ellis, young convert. Well, Christabel, would you do the same if you had a hundred cows? Would you give 50 of them to the Lord? Yes, Teofilo, I would. But would, would you do the same if you had a hundred horses? Would you give 50 of them to the Lord? Oh, yes, of course, Christabel insisted. Well, Christabel, if you had two pigs, would you give one of them to the Lord? No, I wouldn't. And it's not fair of you to ask because you know I do have two pigs. You see, the point is, the giving is not measured by our desires. The giving is not measured by the size of the gift. The giving is measured by how it works out in our situation. It's easy to say if I had a million dollars, I'd give half of it to the Lord. It's quite a different thing to say if I have ten dollars, would I give half of it? That's why you can never judge someone else's giving, folks. You don't know what it means. You don't know. You don't know where their heart is. You don't know what resources they have. You don't know what commitments they have. You cannot judge that. God forbid you. That's why proportional giving is the biblical pattern. You give in proportion to how God has blessed you. If he blesses you greatly, you give greatly. If he blesses you a little, you can only give a little. God measures hearts, not works. And that's true in regard to every expression of our Christian life. For God knows what resources we have to work with, and he knows what issues we have to deal with, and he knows what troubles we face every day, and he knows what blessings we have been given. God knows what it means for us to really trust and obey him in our situation. And nobody else knows that, but God knows. People are so easily deceived. In fact, we can deceive ourselves, but God knows. And God measures hearts, faithful hearts, producing what fruit we have the means to produce. I heard Rudy Giuliani say one time that he had learned that his role was to comfort people when they were disturbed and to disturb people when they get too comfortable. I thought, that's good. I hope this truth does that to us. For I suspect that some of you are always striving and always failing and never able to do what would even live up to your own expectations, and therefore certain that God is angry with you and God is against you, and constantly live in defeat. But folks, I tell you, God knows your situation. If you're poor, God knows you're poor. If you have no means, God knows that. 
And if you have struggles, God knows that. What God wants is faithful hearts producing fruit in your situation. That's all. He doesn't want you to live in my situation or somebody else's situation where he put you. He wants you to be faithful. And he's pleased with a faithful heart laboring in your situation. Be comforted by this truth. But on the other hand, I suspect there are also some of us that are pretty comfortable with ourselves, known and loved by everyone, respected for our generosity, noble causes. Everybody probably wishes they were just like you. Oh, but God knows what's really going on. And God knows what we have, and God knows what we do with it, and God knows where our hearts are, and God knows what we love, and God knows what we trust. And maybe this should be a troubling truth to trouble our comfort wall, our comfortness, our comfort, that God measures our hearts, not the number of dollars we give or the number of works that we do. He looks at our hearts. Well, finally, one more truth from this passage, one more basic truth of the Christian life that's here applied to giving, and that's this. Thirdly, we all stand equal before God. We all stand equal before God. You know, there's no American ideal that is more highly prized than this matter of equality. And there's no American ideal that is more totally distorted than this matter of equality. In the name of equality, we deny some people rights. And in the name of equality, we give preferential treatment to other people. In the name of equality, we try to remove all differences from people to make everyone some mindless, facelessness, into some mindless, faceless sameness. Equality is a, is a thorny thing. But in our text, equality here is not spoken of as this political football with all the spin on it that comes about election time. Here, the Lord talks about equality within the family of God. Now, there are a lot of ways that we can talk about equality. We can talk about our original equality. Philip Hughes speaks of our equality of creaturehood. We all bear the image of God. None of us is anything other than a creature of God. He also speaks of the equality of our sinnerhood, to coin a phrase. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us is righteous, not even one of us. Certainly all mankind stands equal. We all are equally helpless before a holy God. But the equality mentioned here is the equality which exists between those on whom God has shown mercy. Equality of believers in the family of God, in the church of Jesus Christ. You know, never was there a people so diverse as the church of Jesus Christ. Think about this for a moment. You think America is a diverse nation? It's nothing compared to the church. The church, it contains men and women and boys and girls. It contains people from every nation, every continent, every race, every language, every culture in the world. It contains people from every caste, from every socioeconomic strata of every society, every civilization in the world. The church contains rich people, poor people, middle class people, homeless people, independently wealthy people, and everyone in between. It contains slaves and masters, middle class, homeless. It contains factory workers, lawyers, teachers, businessmen, homemakers. 
It contains educated people, illiterate people, geniuses and morons. People from every, every kind of level of learning included in the family of God. And yet in Christ these become brothers and sisters, equal, the children of God because of Christ. In this family, the leaders are to be called brothers. They're forbidden to lord it over others in the family. Headship in this family is defined as servanthood, not lordship. Indeed, Christ identifies himself with those who seem to be the least. And he says, if you've done it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me, buddy. Well, we've tried to press the church into every kind of mold of every society and social structure in history. We've set up hierarchies and class structures, but it never quite fits because God has made us a family of brothers and sisters in Christ who with all of our differences stand equal before the Father. Now here in 2 Corinthians 8, this principle of equality is then applied to the matter of giving. To boil it down and put it in the simplest terms, what's going on here is the Apostle Paul finds it to be a violation of this principle of the equality of people in Christ a violation of this principle for these believers here in Corinth to be living in some luxury. While their brothers and sisters, from whom actually they got the gospel originally, over in Jerusalem, are living in poverty and misery and not caring a thing about doing anything about it. Oh, he does not call for some kind of Christian communism where, where, where there's a, a corporate uh, or, or, or communal uh, ownership of everything. He does not deny the private ownership of property. He does not suggest taking anything from anyone. He does not deny the significant differences between people, differences between cultures, differences between standards of living, even in the church. He does not assume that everyone will be the same at all. But he does suggest that this principle of equality among God's people demands that we bear one another's burdens when we have the opportunity. For who knows, we may be the next suffering one. Now people have written whole books on this matter of wealth and how it all works out and what a Christian's view of it should be. Indeed, people have gone to strange places with their views on this and, and we're not even going to try to sort it all out this morning. But the Apostle Paul sets it for us sets it before us quite simply by a quotation from Exodus 16 in this very last verse here. He who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. You know what Exodus 16 is? Exodus 16 is the account of God giving the people of Israel manna when they were in the wilderness. Every morning, this is a strange thing, every morning they woke up and there was this manna on the ground. This bread-like substance. It's like coriander seed, they said. Laying out in the yard. All you had to do was go pick it up. Six days a week it was there. The sixth day you picked up enough so that you wouldn't have to on the Sabbath day. And so people took baskets. An omer-sized basket. I don't know how big that is. A bushel? I don't know. Took a basket. 
one basket for each person in the household. They went out and gathered. Some people gathered it fast, some people gathered it slowly. But anyway, they gathered. And they came in, and there was enough for everyone. Now, if you tried to hoard it, because, what, you wanted more than everybody else? Or you're afraid maybe God wouldn't provide it tomorrow? If you tried to hoard it, it got maggots in it, and it was bad. You couldn't save it. But tomorrow morning, there it was again. So the Apostle Paul, picking this, picking this quote out of Exodus 16, presents our equality as one of God's people in terms of us being manna gatherers. Manna gatherers. Now, now I, I like this. I, you know, because I need things to be simple. And this seems simple to me. I can understand this. This is applicable to all of God's people in every time, every place. Here's three principles as I see them. Three principles of, for manna gatherers. Uh, principle number one. God provi- God's the provider. It all comes from him. How do you make manna? You don't. God gives it. Everything that we have, God gave it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. You just are the recipient of it. You happen to hold it. That's all. God provides it. God provides. Principle one. Second principle of man and gatherers is you can't keep it. Or as we say, you can't take it with you. There's a proper role for saving. The Bible talks about times when we need to save as an example of good stewardship. But the Bible also condemns hoarding, especially when it seems to imply some superiority over other people. But whether you saved it or whether you're hoarding it, whatever, the truth is, the bottom line is you can't keep it. It's true of manna, it's true of your wealth. You can't keep it. Sorry, you can't. Principle number three. So share what you gather. That was a simple procedure in the, in the wilderness. You gathered up stuff. You knew God was going to provide it. Tomorrow you knew you couldn't keep it, so you shared it, and everybody had enough. That was a profound practice of the early church, as we read about in Acts 2. Some people were suffering. Some people had wealth. And so uh, Joseph went out, and he uh, sold a field he had. And he said, this will give us some money. He brings it to the church, and they were able to feed people. Share what you have. God provided it. You can't keep it. Share it with your brother. And that's the picture that's held before us here. Remembering the needy believers are our brothers and sisters and giving what we can so that we who have gathered much won't have too much and he who has gathered little will not have too little. I can't work out all the details of how that's going to look for you in your Christian giving, but I can tell you that the principles are quite simple. We are manna gatherers. God provides. We can't take it with us. We can't keep it. We're called to share it. For we all stand equal before God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's still true today. That's still true today with the terrible disparity that we have. For we are now like the Corinthian church with all of our wealth and prosperity. While God's people in other places struggle and starve. But we all stand equal before God. Oh, these are not things out of my little life's instruction book. These are eternal truths of God's word. At the same time, these things are not difficult. 
God came in Jesus to save us from our sins and give us eternal life. And the principles by which we live out that Christian life are the same principles by which we deal with this matter of Christian giving. And so we find three of them used right here in this text. The first is that faith produces works. Intentions are not good enough. It needs to produce action. Secondly, that God measures hearts. Our faith must be lived out in our situation. God simply expects us to be faithful with what he entrusts to us. And thirdly, we all stand equal before God. Our lives need to reflect our relationship to our Christian brothers and sisters. We're just man of gatherers. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And as we reflect on it, I pray that you would grow it in us and cause it to produce fruit. For Lord, when we talk about our view of wealth and our view of our responsibility to one another among your people, we realize that we're talking about something that is totally foreign to our culture, where the emphasis is so much on, uh, on uh, hoarding as much wealth as I can get and looking out for myself, oblivious to anyone else. And Lord, I pray that you would transform us by your word that we might see things differently and that we would learn what it means to be good stewards, whether you make us wealthy, and you do make some people wealthy, or whether you give us a little and we suffer in poverty, or maybe be good stewards and faithful with the means that you provided us. Lord, teach us this. Help us to work it out in our various situations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.